0: So I recently read Michael Lewis's book, The Big Short. Hashtag summer reading. Woohoo! It was a fascinating look at the money managers who sniffed out problems in the U.S. housing market that would come to cause our economy to crash and how they used that, what they had seen, they used their insight to make a lot of money. Uh, in reading the book, what befell all these men was something that can happen to all of us at one time or another. Not making a ton of money because the economy crashes but this once you see something you can't unsee it you see you read the big short and the way that Lewis presents the information it's like this is so simple how did we never how did we all not see this coming and yet these guys were looking at the same data that everyone else was looking at they just happened to see something a little bit differently in the data something that not everyone else was seeing Lewis talks about what it was in their personalities, what it was in their backgrounds, their makeups that allowed them to see what no one else saw, but basically once they saw it, they couldn't unsee it, they couldn't leave it alone, and for two years they became obsessed with what they had seen, mainly because what they had seen ran so counter to the basic fundamentals of what people thought about the economy. They were dogged in their approach, and it paid off, literally. That was, a, that was a little bit of a joke there. Anyways, uh, this morning, not a good one, as it, would, as it would seem. This morning, what I want to present to you is something that I have seen that I simply cannot unsee. It involves a parable that Jesus told. I saw it first in 2008, and since then I have been held captive by what I saw. And I can't shake it, I can't unsee it, I can't go back. But here's the thing. To my knowledge, no one else agrees with me. I'm alone on this island. We're going to look at two parables Jesus told back to back, and I'm going to take one, one that you might have heard many times before, and I'm going to tell you that what you thought it means, what other pastors have told you it means, isn't what it means. So you might hate this sermon. But just like the dudes in the big short, I can't help but at least try to convince you. But here's the good news. Unlike in the big short, if at the end of this you disagree with me, the economy will not crash. Nothing bad will happen. Your salvation will not be in doubt. You just might not like this sermon. Very little stakes. Hopefully, at the very least, you will find this interesting. Having apologized in advance for what I'm about to do, let's go right to the first parable. It's in Matthew 25, starting with verse 14. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. The man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I know that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have with abundance. Whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So if you've heard that, or read this parable before, likely this is what you've taken it to mean. God gives each of us talents. God has invested in each of us. God has given us each unique gifts, unique strengths. God has equipped us. But all of this has an orientation. All of this has a purpose. We are gifted so that we can use our gifts to increase the kingdom of God. We are called to serve in the church and to serve our world. We are called to be like the first two servants who took their talents from their master and gave the master a return on his investment. We aren't to be like the last one who didn't put his talent to work. That would be to waste what God has given us. We believe this is a parable about God and us and the way the kingdom of God comes into the world. And there are a few translations who begin this parable by saying the kingdom of God is like dot dot dot. They begin the story by naming the kingdom. So we think this is about how we participate in the growing of God's kingdom. But what if I told you the phrase the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven is not included in the Greek And what if I told you I don't think this parable is about God at all? Let's take the first question because uh, it's the easiest to prove. If you look at the Greek, and frankly don't, that's what you pay me for, but if you do, you'd see that the NRSV translates the opening the best when it begins the parable, for it is as if. No mention of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, it's just not there in the Greek. The only thing that's there is this ambiguous it, which begs the question, What is the it? To go further, I should probably say what led me to this belief that this parable isn't about God. And it comes into how the master relates to the servants. In the case of the first two servants, the master rewards them for work they have done. But clearly, his affection is based directly upon their performance in managing his wealth. The master rewards them, the master praises them, the master loves them because of work they have done. This runs counter to our understanding of God's love for us, which isn't so much based on what we do. God doesn't love us any more or any less based on how we perform. God loves us because that's who God is. And whether or not we do work, whether or not we perform, whether or not we make a return on investment, God loves us, and God will not stop loving us. To position God as someone whose love is dependent on our good works runs anathema to the God we meet in Jesus Christ. But the kicker for me was how the master treated the third servant. When he comes back with only one talent he was given, uh, when he comes back with the, only the one talent he was given, comma, should have, the master throws him out on the street. He gives up on him and sends him away. He exiles him. Now, if you're worried about the behavior of the master in this version of the story, I, I can't, t- Luke doesn't make it any better. In Luke's version of the story, We have a rich young ruler who comes back as a king, but otherwise the basic gist is the same. Oh, and Luke says mina instead of talents, but it's a lot of money. So in Luke's version it has, Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you do not put in and reap what you do not sow." His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take away his mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. This is not who God is to me. Someone who will punish, give up on, kill on the basis of what we do or do not do. And I figure if a parable is going to Fundamentally alter my depiction of God. Perhaps the problem isn't the parable, but the interpretation. So I began to wonder what this could be about. If it wasn't about God, what was this parable about? Then I thought some more about the whole dismissing the servant who didn't get a good return on investment. And I thought, I know that doesn't sound like God, but it does sound like someone I know. It sounds like a bad boss. It sounds like a wicked CEO. It sounds like the villains in the big short. People who will give bonuses to those who perform and fire those who don't. That's totally familiar to us. And then it hit me. What if this parable, if it's not about God and his kingdom, what if it's about our world? What if it's about the world we live in here and now? What if it's about what life is like here and now? Not when God gets what God wants, but right now when we are hurt and crushed by the fact that this isn't what God wanted. And here's the thing. If we think of this parable in this way, the one that comes right after takes on a whole new meaning. We're continuing in Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from the other, as a shepherd shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is also a pretty well-known parable. I've preached on it a bunch of times in my time here. And I have to tell you, there's always a part of it that's bugged me. The whole part at the end about those that didn't help the least getting thrown into eternal punishment. You see, I'm a good Protestant. Grace alone. And I read it and I'm kind of like, Jesus, did you forget about that grace part? Now it's about works? I mean, it hasn't bugged me enough to not preach the parable here. It's just bugged me enough to never mention it and hope that you didn't realize it either. But when I read these two parables together with a certain interpretation, I finally see how it fits in. Traditionally, when we talk about this parable, we talk about how it shows our need to serve, our need to be in ministry to those less fortunate than us, which is what it's about to be sure. But when I read these two parables together, I get the sense that Jesus isn't simply giving his disciples a call to arms to serve. He isn't simply trying to fire them up for ministry. He's doing a little bit more, maybe a lot more. I think he's describing an entirely different world. One that only God in Jesus Christ can see. And one that God is working to make our reality. So stay with me for a few more minutes. You all have been really patient with me up till now. I promise this gets good. Or moderately okay. (laughs) The first parable is describing the world the way it is. It's a world where people's values are determined solely in how much money they can make for their master. How much wealth they can accumulate. Your worth is determined by your usefulness within the economy. But we can sub out other things for this than simply money. The world has told each and every one of you that there's some sort of measuring stick that determines your worth. Maybe it's your career advancement. Maybe it's how clean and together you have your house, your life, your family. Maybe it's what college your kid goes to or how they do in sports. Maybe it's how full you can keep your schedule, how busy you can make yourself. There's something that you have internalized as what makes you worthy, what brings you praise, what makes you good. And you believe that if you don't live up to that standard, you'll be cast out, you'll be alone, you'll be seen as not good enough. And so you hustle. You try as hard as you can to live up to that standard, the standard that the world has told you will make you worthy. And you probably wind up exhausted if you're like me. And you resent the master who is making you run ragged in a vain attempt at measuring up. But here's the gospel. There's another way. There's another world. We just need God to imagine it for us. Jesus speaks of a world where your value isn't based on what you get, but on what you give. A world where your value isn't based on what you can gain for those on top of society, but what you can do for those on the bottom of society. A world where value isn't assigned based on what you do, but what you do for others. Jesus says in his kingdom, it's not going to be about hustling and trying to meet impossible standards in an exhaustive attempt to feel worthy. Instead, it's going to be based on what you can do for others, what you can give away, how you can help, how you can serve. Instead of value based on achievement, it's value based on service. Instead of value based on wealth, it's value based on generosity. Now, this world is not the world that we live in, but I really wish it was. For me, this resolves the end part about punishment in our second parable. Because I don't believe that God punishes us based on what we do or don't do. Protestant, grace alone. I think this part about punishment is included because punishment is something we face in the world. In the first parable and in our world, we are punished if we don't achieve enough, if we don't make enough, if we aren't valuable as the world defines value. Jesus is applying the same schema, but is applying it in a a different standard as to who goes where. It's a way of hammering home what truly matters in God's world. So what I see happening here isn't so much Jesus trying to encourage his followers and us to help others, though that certainly is something that's going on. Rather, I see him describing a new world, a new world order. The new world, a new world order that God desires to make real here and now. A world where we view serving and giving and being generous as the highest possible priority for our lives. A world where we see ministry as our primary vocation. And by ministry, I don't mean being a pastor or being paid to work in a church. I mean seeing your life's work rooted in helping others. A world where we see the measuring stick isn't GDP growth, but homelessness rate. A world where we see the highest priority, not in what the stock market did this year, but how many people moved from poverty to self-sufficiency. And it's not so much that we are invited to discrete acts of service as we are invited to imagine and live in this world, this new world that God is making in our midst. To me, these parables don't so much seek to change our behavior as they seek to show how God wants to change everything and invite us to think of ways that we can begin to live in God's new world. And this comes as grace to me because deep down I want to serve more. I want to be more generous. But I'm worried about how I can be generous and measure up in the way that the world values. I'm worried about how I can serve others and achieve all the world has conditioned me to believe I need to achieve in order to be worthy. How can I be generous and save for retirement? How can I be generous and do all the other things? (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) That's why I don't ad-lib. I remember our our tweens are about to go on a mission trip. I remember going on a mission trip in high school and college and serving and truly being with people and thinking, this is the way I want to live all the time. I want to live all the time in serving others, in helping others, in being in community with others. And so when I hear that that's the world that God wants to make, it makes my heart happy. We had BBS a few weeks ago. I want to be teaching children to encounter the stories of Jesus all the time. But we have to choose, right? We have to choose are we going to do the things that the world declares are valuable or are we going to do the things that make our hearts happy. In God's world, we won't have to choose. It's good news to hear there's a world where things deep down I desire to do are the things of ultimate importance. If you're like me, then perhaps you can feel that you are freed. You're freed from, or -er. (laughs) free-er, being totally free would well, that's a lifetime's work, but you're free-er from the things the world has taught you to believe are important, things you find yourself exhausted trying to live up to. You are free-er to do the things you know deep down are worth your time, worth your effort, worth your devotion. God is making a new world in our midst, a new world formed on new values. You're invited to take your place in that world. And more specifically, you're invited to spend a few minutes processing these stories. So, we've been doing this over the summer. Uh, It's called our Summer Extensions. Um, We're going to have, over here, there's going to be small group questions for those who want to process it by speaking loud to people Um, at the back table there is a uh, poster where you're gonna have the opportunity to to do something with your hands a little more tactile but also talking it in community Uh, at the back table here there are journals so if you don't want to have to talk to anybody um, you are invited to to process this through journaling and then right around here, we have some prayer prompts if you want to encounter this story through or these stories through prayer. Uh, so we're 10 minutes, uh, so it does end. Um, but go ahead and get into whatever group matches your personality or where you find yourself this morning.